Hi, welcome to season three of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number nine. Today, Lee and Dave talk about Charlie Chaplin, Albert Einstein, Joni Ernst, Ted Cruz, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, young narcissistic men, and Carl Sagan. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, thank you, Candy, very much for that kind introduction. I'm Lee. And I'm Dave. Hey, and welcome back to the Pictures Out There podcast series. We'd like to extend a welcome to our present day audience. Hey, folks. Our audience is years, decades, perhaps centuries from now. Well, howdy. Yeah. How about our future AI audience? Ooh. Perhaps our future alien audience. And we like to oh, say oh, oh, our oh. universal audience. <laughs> Sound effects provided by Dave. <laughs> really bad sound effects. <laughs> so glad to have all of you listening to chat number nine Uh-oh. in season three. Thank you for joining us. We like to begin, as is our custom, with these two questions for your reflection. What are your ideals and what are your pictures? Well, Dave, let's begin with one of our pictures that we've referenced numerous times. It's simple to complex and then back to simple. It's how we get wise. It's how we get wise. Yeah. Would you kind of recap for people what that means? Yeah, we talk about that we all start at an ignorant level, not knowing very much about something, an issue, people, what have you. That's our first simple. And then we go to complex, which is where we learn. We're curious. We ask questions. We hear stories and all of that. And boy, that becomes a flood mm-hmm. of information and input. Mm-hmm. And we believe that the key thing then at that juncture, once we have learned, is to pull out of that and say, what were the most compelling things about everything exactly. we learned? Yes. And there is a second simple after all of that learning where we say, this is the part of this that's really important. And we believe that's wisdom. Yeah. It's a practiced habit. And we think people that we normally say, oh, they are so wise. They're able to make very simple statements, but it's after they have learned a lot. So here is a quotation. Have you ever heard of a fellow named Albert Einstein? Yeah, that dude. Yeah, he knew a few things. Well, he met the great Hollywood actor Charlie Chaplin in 1931. And Einstein said, quote, what I admire most about your art is its universality. You do not say a word, and yet the world understands you. Chaplin replied, what's true, but your fame is even greater. The world admires you when no one understands you. (laughs) So these were both geniuses and wise people, right? Yeah, and they, we've quoted both of these guys in earlier podcasts. They both came up with very wise things to say. And I think for just a moment to think about the fact that if you're going and you're looking at a movie and you know that there's not going to be any words, doesn't our attention, doesn't paying attention, which we've also talked about, yes, the importance of paying attention, don't we really pay attention then to movements, to mm-hmm. facial expressions, mm-hmm. to what's the lesson out of that? Yeah. You know, do we pay attention enough? Right. You know, and right. so that art form was amazing where it could pull that out. And everything that can, can be communicated without words. Yeah. And then Einstein, I think a lot of his wisdom where he would pull out that second simple and make these very wise comments. The thing that's interesting to me about that is that then he earned our trust. Yes. We would trust him because he made these very wise, simple observations about life. And we would trust all this math and science that we couldn't figure out. Right. We knew nothing about, but we trusted the person. Yeah. 
we had some sense that he'd been in the complex. Yes. And he'd extracted the simple from it. And that, that doesn't that make you feel comfortable when somebody like that kind of goes, yeah, yeah, I understand all of this, all of this stuff. Right. And I've learned about all of it. <laughs> but I'm telling you, the important thing is this. Yes. And that's something we can understand. And we kind of go, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. So the, I don't have to go understand all of this stuff. You're kind of telling me that this is kind of it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> We've also talked about uh, the equalist movement. This our, that's our picture for equality for all. And also this notion of fear to courage to love, right, that, that we've talked about. And we're going to talk about here for just a minute the notion of the fear of equality. Mm. The fear of equality for all. Do we have that fear? Are we afraid of all being equal? And as we've said before, equality or being equal doesn't mean we're the same at all. No. Because we're all unique. Right. But it does mean that we all matter. Yes. And we're all of equal worth and value. Uh, so do we do we have a fear of fully and truly sharing with one another and being equal? And I think among our society today, there's a question of do we negotiate the fears that we want to keep and that we think we can't get rid of? That's an interesting Hmm. thought here yes you know it's a sort of uh i'll let you keep your fears if, if I, I can, can keep, keep mine, mine. <laughs> you know? and do we talk to other people and kind of go yeah. we let that out slowly maybe but it's kind of like yeah i'm kind of afraid of them too yeah it's usually not verbalized no, usually no. not articulated yeah. are you kind of afraid of them yeah yeah i'm kind of afraid oh can we be a community that's kind of around our fear yeah you know we kind of have some common things here and so uh, you know that that deal where we sometimes will validate our fears by validating other people's mm-hmm. fears for them. Mm-hmm. You know, let's validate each other. Mm-hmm. We're both afraid of this and let's both agree that we should be. And in some weird dysfunctional way, does that make <laughs> us more comfortable in the moment? Yeah, I think it does. It gives us a community, right? You know, but I'm not in this alone but, and I'm not the only crazy one, but we would say it's a completely dysfunctional. Yes destructive community yeah yeah built around fear it's rooted in fear not in rooted love in fear yeah but it can in that moment create a community and we'll talk about that notion here a little bit later in the podcast and, and kind of take that someplace else so we came across a, and fortunately we can't show you this image through a, a podcast but there was a, a great little picture we saw that had some text on it and it showed a gray bearded old guy and he looks kind of a little disturbed in his eyes. And the, the text says, three conspiracy theorists walk into a bar. And then down below it says, you can't tell me that's just a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we can really take this you know, community of fear that gets created sometime around our negotiated fears and, and things we share with other people. And that really can lead to paranoia. And Lee, that made me think of the classic Stephen Stills lyric from What It's Worth. Mm-hmm. Paranoia no, it strikes deep. deep into your life. It, it will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. That's how it begins. Yeah. yeah. And, and finding other people that will let you agree with that. So, so we're going to table this topic here for a little while in the podcast, but it'll come back. If you're fearful that it won't come back, let us allay your fears. It will. It will return. (laughs) So now is the time for our customary advanced intelligence update. This from the Washington Post newspaper published July 21, 2023. So just a few months from where we are today. 
The headline stated, seven big tech companies agreed to alert people to AI-generated content. Okay, so who? Uh, Google, Microsoft, and the maker of ChatGPT were among the firms to sign, this is important, a voluntary pledge, this was not coerced, to address the risks of AI, the White House said in an announcement. Here's the plan. The companies agreed to oversight from independent security experts, and they will create watermarking systems to flag when an image or text or video is created by AI. Kind of like a copyright yeah. little thing. Yeah. Hey, look, this was yeah. generated by AI. Yeah. 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 The Biden White House took its most ambitious step to date to address the safety concerns and risks of AI, announcing that seven of the most influential companies building AI have agreed to this voluntary pledge. And the hope is this will mitigate the risks of the emerging technology, escalating the White House's involvement in an increasingly urgent debate over how AI should be regulated or whether it should be regulated. Biden also said he was going to work with both parties to develop, quote, appropriate AI legislation, throwing the weight of the White House behind bipartisan efforts in Congress to craft new rules for AI. And Lee, I can hear our future audience out there in the distance listening to this going, yeah, but did, didn't you guys have like a completely dysfunctional Congress as this was going on? <laughs> and the answer would be yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> And uh, so the notion of bipartisan efforts, it's like, well, that didn't get happen. Right. You know, right. that may be some form of, okay, this is serious enough to where we have to put aside some of our differences, of our different, some of our personal Petty. arrogance and motivation to actually accomplish something. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. You know. As we sit here in 2023, one might argue that AI could have come up with better legislation yes. about AI yes. than the humans charged with legislation. And in fact, that may actually be, be. what ends up happening, <laughs> you know, as our future AI audience and our future human audience goes, yep, that's that's what happened. You know, <laughs> humans couldn't do it. So AI took care of that. That may end up being the best thing. So in this White House pledge, the companies vowed to allow independent security experts to test their systems before they are released to the public and committed to sharing data about the safety of their systems with the government and academics. And so we're wanting to continue this kind of basic foundational uh, sharing of information about what is going on in the preparation for the explosion of AI. And again, a lot of people are trying to work together mm -hmm. to do the right thing. They are. To yes. plan for it and to create a picture of it where, again, risks are minimized and all of the opportunities that we've talked about are enhanced. So some individuals and some organizations have developed a picture for what I will call responsible AI. Yes. Yeah. So the firms also pledged to develop tools to alert the public when an image, text, or video is created by AI. It's a method known as watermarking, as we referenced previously. In addition to these tech giants, several newer businesses at the forefront of AI development also signed the pledge. Enforcement of the pledge would largely fall to the governmental entity, the Federal Trade Commission, which has emerged as the top tech industry watchdog. Oh, isn't that one of those agencies, Lee, today here in 2023 that people are saying, well, you don't, you don't need that. Right. That's government control. Yeah, that's right. That's getting in the way of wealthy oligarchs yeah. and billionaires getting yeah. to do what they want to do. It's restricting capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, we have this notion here in the present that, again, we people kind of saying government's ineffective, which is always 
just such a hoot to me because we get people that you know go into political life to become a part of the government so that they can then make it as ineffective as possible. Right. <laughs> and then we kind of go, oh, people will go, oh, it is ineffective. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it's only ineffective because people are working to make it ineffective. Right. It is ridiculous. Right. And we know those of you in the future, including AI and aliens, are going, yeah, you guys, that was insane. <laughs> what was that clown what, show? <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we always like kind of keeping, and, and there's going to be foundational stuff that we do with AI, and we're going to be getting into much more kind of current. This happened in the last month or two kind of things uh, going forward, but great to have that foundation. So... A picture for humor. We've talked about that. This question of, in our picture for humor, as a quick reminder, we've said we each own what is humor, humorous about us. Okay, uh, much as we own physical boundaries, mm-hmm. we own boundaries of humor. Mm-hmm. And if there's things about ourselves that we don't think are funny, mm-hmm. we don't want people to make fun of them. Right. You know. And we also obviously believe in taking serious issues seriously and having debates around them. So satire. Lee, Where does that fit? Where does that fit into there? Taking a satirical approach, and and in this case, we're talking about things where serious issues are getting talked about, and they're done in a funny way. Mm -hmm. Or what may be funny to some. But not to others. But not to others. Right. Where does that fit? Yeah. So we're going to throw up a trial balloon here. We're we're going to read a satirical piece. And we would ask you to listen to see, is this destructive or is it constructive? Yes. Is this, in your mind, um, helping the debate? Mm -hmm. And so there's all sorts of examples where political change has been driven, in a lot of cases in the past, through the use of satire. Absolutely. Satire has been part of a debate about an issue, and in its use, people have kind of gone, you know, it is kind of ridiculous Mm -hmm. that we're doing this. Yeah. And this satirical piece has kind of underscored that for me. And so now I believe we ought to do something different. Yeah. It's driven change. That's a great point. And let's all remember the real point of satire is to point out the absurdity in the situation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but we understand that as some of you are listening to this, (laughs) some of you may find this hysterically funny. Some of you may think it's not funny. Yeah. Some of you may think it's real. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. So let's go through this. This piece is, is from USA Today. It's from September 3rd. And it's by Rex Hupke. And it's entitled, Is Joe Biden Coming for Our Beer? <laughs> no, but we Republicans will still be outraged. And so we'll start reading here from this, this piece. Dear fellow graduates of the Republican School for Performative Outrage, as I'm sure you're aware, there have been two very serious, not real developments that require our immediate overreaction. First, President Joe Biden is coming to take our beer. Second, the liberal nanny state is about to reimpose sweeping COVID lockdowns and mask mandates that will take away all our freedoms and turn us into communist, Marxist, socialist, Taoists. (laughs) Let's start with the beer. Not since Bud Light tried to destroy America by giving one can of beer to a transgender person has there been an alcohol-related non-issue in more desperate need of (laughs) over-dramatization. This past week, we learned of a comment that George Koob 
the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, made to a British newspaper suggesting the U.S. Department of Agriculture might consider adjusting its recommendations on alcoholic drinks down from two per day to two per week. (gasps) As we learned in Leaping to Conclusions 101 at the School for Performative Outrage, a comment that is suggesting something that might be considered or recommended about beer (laughs) is no different than the full implementation of a wholly tyrannical law that will be enforced by federal beer investigators. The new FBI, I might add. Federal beer investigators. And so, so as the article continues, and I'll start reading again in a second, these are actual quotes. These are real. These are real quotes. These the, are things that the people said. So it is not misquoting somebody. It's not misrepresented. No. It is what they actually said in response to the real thing that happened with George Koob and his comment to the British newspaper. Yes. So here we go. Back to the article. So a few of our star graduates reacted appropriately. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa tweeted smartly about this thing that isn't happening. Another Biden czar. This one wants to take away Americans' beer. Absurd. Republican Representative Brian Mast of Florida similarly faux-acted, tweeting, We tried something similar to this before. It was called prohibition. There's a reason we ended it. It was terrible. Let the people drink their beer. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas even posted a video of himself surrounded by a group of manly Texas friends (laughs) he presumably met on one of his brave trips to Cancun, drinking beer and snarling in a manner one would expect from an everyman who graduated from Princeton University and Harvard Law School. If they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass. (laughs) Clearly, as Professor Farce taught us in our upper-level resistance to facts class, we must join in and help our fellow Republicans with this collective freakout and not be lulled into passivity by the fact that nothing has actually happened, and even if it did, it's just a health recommendation and not the government enforcing beer consumption. After all... The USDA's Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend a maximum of 2,400 calories a day for adult women and 3,000 calories a day for adult men. And we all adhere precisely to those figures at all times, <laughs> lest Biden's goons come knock the Twinkies out of our hands. <laughs> On to the next thing that is not really a thing. COVID lockdowns. Many Republican School of for Performative Outrage alums are dutifully hollering about rumors that an increase in COVID cases means the Biden administration is moments away from locking down all of America and dispatching federal agents to strap KN95 masks to all of our faces. It appears these rumors, what we outrage scholars call undeniable facts, started last month when noted truth dispenser Alex Jones' InfoWars website featured this headline, Federal officials blow the whistle on Biden's plan for new COVID lockdowns. Again, <laughs> folks, these are real quotes. From this, no- <laughs> these actually happen. Okay? From noted truth dispenser, no- Alex Noted Jones. truth dispenser. Because the entire claim was grounded in nonsense, Republican Representative Thomas Massey tweeted, 
If bureaucrats try to reinstate any COVID tyranny measures, resist them with a vengeance. Do not comply. And before long, former president and current GOP presidential primary frontrunner Donald Trump, our most highly regarded alumnus, was sharing a video accompanied by this message. COVID tyrants want to take away our freedom. Hear my words, all caps, we will not comply. This made officials here at the Republican School for Performative Outrage particularly proud, given that Trump was the one who instituted lockdowns in 2020 as part of his administration's COVID mitigation plan. Being pretend outraged over something you also did is the work of a true performative outrage expert. (laughs) Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders smartly hopped on the unmerited outrage train, tweeting, As long as I'm governor, Arkansas will not lock down. We will not close schools, churches, or businesses, and we will not have mask or COVID vaccine mandates. Lee, it's almost like the the call of, let's get re-angry, everyone. You all haven't been angry enough enough. for a while. Yeah, Yeah, let's get re-angry together. We're a community. We're a community. We're fearful and faux-outraged. We're a community of faux-outrage and fear. Yeah. Yeah, let's get back together. Let's also ignore the numbers on these issues. Mm -hmm. Because when some of this stuff started, it was before really there were numbers about the uh, use of masks and the use of vaccines and how effectively they work. The notion now that some years later, we might actually go back and look at numbers. Data and evidence. Data and facts and see whether or not masks worked. Mm -hmm. See whether or not vaccines Vaccines worked. worked. No. No. Now let's not. Now that. That, that, yeah. now let's not do that. Let's no. let's because we we're all in on our fear. Yeah, we're all in on it, yeah. and we can't stop. And so we have to occasionally get kind of re-energized about our fear. So the article goes on to say, "Don't let Biden get away with doing things that help people. <laughs> we must stay angry, given the complete lack of evidence that any serious person is talking about lockdowns or mask mandates." And because this rumor came from the same man who posited the government is putting chemicals in the water that turn frogs gay, we must do all we can to join in the chorus of baseless Baseless. outrage. Biden spent last week talking about superficial things like negotiating down the price of 10 of the most used and expensive drugs older Americans rely on and implementing Minimum staffing requirements for every taxpayer-funded nursing home. Nice try, Stalin. (laughs) We school for performative outrage grads know there are larger, more imaginary fish to fry. (laughs) The article continues. So, please accept this call to swiftly overreact via social media to friends and family or in front of any television camera you can find to the 1,000% real threat to our God-given right to drink as much beer as Ted Cruz wants us to drink and to the definitely soon-to-be-happening dictatorial COVID lockdowns and mandatory face diapering. We recommend you take the following statement and tailor it to fit your own unfounded personal outrage style. We will not comply with the things that are not happening that we think are happening because if we aren't in a constant state of existential rage, we might be forced to acknowledge we bear some responsibility for our own wretched lives. And always remember our school motto, our righteous anger is never hindered hindered by by the the truth. truth. Cue the alma mater. So we think that was very funny and we think it was actually a very effective piece of satire 
to talk about the very serious issues yes. that are in the article. Yes. You know, so you are free, as always, audience, to draw the conclusions you want, to have the reaction we want. But we think this is something that, again, within the confines of what we talked about, accurate quotes, accurate representations, certainly by public figures who are making them to get attention, they're fair game Yes, to be used as part of a public discourse about a serious yeah, issue. Yeah, well said. Okay. So we talked about fear to courage to love. That's one of our repeat pieces, and we just discussed that a little bit. Uh, here's a great quote from uh, an interesting guy, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Those of you who remember him, a Russian writer. Yeah, who was uh, basically sent to an island for however many years because he wrote things the Russian government didn't care for. Yeah, Gulag Archipelago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he has a quote that says, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. Wow. Let's reread that for each of us. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. We'll leave that with you to think about a little bit. So now we're going to talk about an issue, and we did a little bit of a teaser at the beginning uh, on what we're going to be discussing here. And we want to set it up a little bit. Sometimes the pictures that we've created, and we're going to mention three here, one is equality for all. Mm -hmm. Everybody has equal worth and value. Yes. And the second one is minimizing violence. Yes. Our picture for that really talks about getting at all aspects of violence from birth. Really from the beginning, from the tra- beginning, training ourselves as a society to stop violence in its tracks and to stop cycles of violence from getting created. And the third we're going to talk about is one of our tools, which is ongoing community of caring. Yes. We all need to have these communities. They need to be constructive and not destructive, mm-hmm. as we just talked about. Not rooted in fear, fear, right. fear, et cetera. So we think there are some issues in our society where multiple pictures really need to be brought into play multiple tools need to be brought into play to effectively deal with big big issues and so this is one of them we're going to talk about it's it's uh, we're going to use a thought-provoking article from earlier this year in the atlantic by tom nichols and it's called the narcissism of the angry young men and so there's some parts of this article where you know, we will probably agree with what he's saying. We will probably disagree with what he's saying. That probably to us is less important than having a foundation of pictures that says, well, this is where we're trying to go to. Yes. As it relates to the issue he's talking about, what's actually required to solve the problem? Mm-hmm. And we think sometimes what happens is we take very small solutions to big problems or we do them in isolation of other things. And then we ask ourselves why they're not effective yeah. when actually a bigger societal change is what's required to yeah. solve the problem. Yeah, it would have been more holistic from the beginning. It probably would have solved it sooner than one segment at a time. Exactly. So Tom writes, I, I had written an article about the young men who perpetuate such crimes. And he's referring to mass shootings and some of those more egregious things. I suggested that an overview of these killers showed them in general to be young losers Uh, We will say that's an unfortunate word choice. Agreed. That's part of the problem. Yep. Is labeling people. Yep. uh, Which automatically makes them less worthy, less valuable. Agreed. But on to our article. Who failed to mature and whose lives revolved around various grievances, insecurities, and heroic fantasies. I called them lost boys as a nod to their arrested adolescence. 
The Lost Boys are the perpetrators of out-of-the-blue massacres of innocent people. Their actions are not driven by criminal gain, but instead are meant to shock us, to make us grieve, and finally to force us to acknowledge the miserable existence of these young men behind the triggers. The Lost Boys are mostly young and male, largely middle or working class. Frustrated by their own social awkwardness, they are so often described as, quote, loners that the trope has been around from as early as the 1980s. But these young males, no matter how quiet, are filled with an astonishing level of enraged resentment and entitlement about their roles as men, and they seek rationalizations for inflicting violence on a society they think has both ignored and injured them, and they are, above all, staggeringly narcissistic. Almost all of the recent mass killers, for example, thought they had a special mission in the world. We know this because they felt compelled to tell us so. Narcissism is a common malady, but for the Lost Boys, it's the indispensable primer for a bomb whose core is an unstable mass of insecurities about masculine identity. Again, we would say we need to get to a picture that is less about gender roles and more about equality for all. That's, that's part of the problem is people chasing what it, you know, this is what it is to be a man yes. versus what it is to be a woman or any other identity. And we think that's actually part of the problem. Yes. This, of course, helps explain why such spectacular and ghastly acts are an almost entirely male phenomenon, he goes on to say. Women who are less prone to commit violence in general are rarely the perpetrators of this, these kinds of senseless massacres. Fear of women, hatred of minorities, animosity toward authority, patterns of absent or dysfunctional fathers, histories of being bullied, romance with symbols of power, conflicts of identity and sexuality, we can catalog at length the similarities among these young misfits. For most males, this is a transitory part of adolescence. For the lost boys, it is a permanent condition, a deadly combination of stubborn immaturity and towering narcissism. Knowing about the common characteristics of these killers and terrorists does not shed much light on what to do to thwart them. In other words, we need a coherent picture. Stricter gun laws, which is a good idea in general, will not stop the mass murderers already among us who live in a society saturated with easily obtained weapons. Law enforcement can infiltrate and destroy violent militias and terror cells and other threats, but that will not prevent unstable young men from searching for causes to justify their massacres, if they even bother with such ideas. Likewise, arguments about, quote, toxic masculinity, as attempting as they are in these cases, miss the mark. Yeah, Lee, I think this is one place where in this article we can even start seeing just the complexity. Yes. Starting as you're listening to this, doesn't it start to just become overwhelming? Yes all of this and what is the wisdom to pull out of this and say, what are the simple pictures going forward that we can do mm -hmm. that aren't what we're doing today, mm -hmm. but that would make these things likely largely go away. Yeah. And we struggle as a society with doing that. Yeah. An obvious example here is, well, how about stricter gun control? Well, that may help probably would, but yet again, that's such a tiny part of the overall and at the same time, we're talking about how these young men start having problems at very early ages, typically. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that tell you? Yeah, because... The... You had issues that weren't addressed, mm -hmm. things that weren't stopped then, mm -hmm. 
they either didn't feel like they belonged to a constructive community. They themselves were the subjects of abuse. Yeah. 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 And so ergo our pictures of minimizing violence and having an ongoing community that's, that's constructive. Yeah. Well, let's continue with this very challenging article. The problem of toxic masculinity is real, but the swaggering jerks and violent abusers who sometimes become a threat to their partners and to themselves are distinct from the insecure man boys who decide to prove their worth or just to prove that they exist by committing extraordinary acts of mass murder. And in general, toxic men are easy to spot. The lost boys are by their nature usually invisible until they strike. The article continues. What we can do, however, is start talking more about the specific problem of dangerous male immaturity without falling into endless loops about gun control, about public health, or toxic masculinity. We can, in schools and colleges, pay closer attention to the boys and young men who seem to be sliding toward darkness, perhaps with more attempts to pull them toward a community or into mentorship with older men. At the least, we should be able to find a way to engage in gentle interventions early rather than face more drastic consequences later. Yeah, Lee, and we love his mention here of community. Pull these young men, anybody, it's not, it's any, any person, any young person that we see, anybody in grade school, anybody that we see in middle school. Yes. At those ages, are they alone? Right. Do they not feel like they belong? Do they not feel like they're worth as much as other people? Do they feel like they have something to prove? Mm-hmm. Work with them. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. Yeah. Recognize yeah. their value because they possess value. Right. But we can start by redefining the basic problem and recognizing lost boys as a distinct phenomenon. We are not likely to stop the next mass attacker or school shooter or terrorist, whether that's tomorrow or next year. However, if we recognize that our current arguments are dead ends, we can start anew and become more creative about finding solutions before we produce yet another generation of silent time bombs. And we agree with him that this is not something that's instantly solved. It's been forever in creation. It's been part of humanity. And that's where we're saying we need new pictures. We need to have have a completely new setup of a picture for minimizing violence. We need to ensure that everyone has a constructive community of caring around them. And we need a society that believes in and supports equality for all, which also means us exploring who we uniquely are. Yes. And now how to become a man. Yes. Or what it is to be a woman. Stop that nonsense. Stop it. And let people develop their unique selves, their unique gifts. All of these things are required to solve this issue and so many other issues like it. Yes. Yeah. It can't be surgical. It has to be a big change. Yes. Ah, We can do it. A new picture. We can do it. So with that very challenging topic behind us for today, let's turn our attention to connection to all creation, something we've talked about in pictures previously. With our connection to one another and the connection that we all possess to creation, we can both give and receive the power of kindness. Little acts add up to big changes. Everyone can do their part, as we've said so very, very many times. So we would like to share with you a delightful story from a delightful fellow named Drew Dudley. And I'm going to spell his last name, D-U-D-L-E-Y, first name Drew. If you want to go to a search engine and put in Drew Dudley's TED Talk, 
It's delightful to watch this for six or seven minutes, but we're just going to give you excerpts from this delightful little story. And again, it's all about the power of kindness and making connections with one another. The story begins. I went to school in a little school called Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. And on my last day there, a girl came up to me and she said, I remember the first time I met you. And then she told me a story that had happened four years earlier. She said, on the day before I started university, I was in the hotel room with my mom and my dad, and I was so scared and so convinced that I couldn't do this, that I wasn't ready for university, that I burst into tears. And my mom and dad were amazing. They were like, hey, look, we know you're scared, but let's just go tomorrow. Let's go to the first day. And if at any point you feel as if you can't do this, that's fine. Just tell us. We'll take you home. We love you no matter what. And she says, I went the next day and I was standing in line getting ready for registration. And I looked around and I just knew I couldn't do it. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I had to quit. And she says, I made that decision. And as soon as I made it, there was this incredible feeling of peace that came over me. And I turned to my mom and dad to tell them that we needed to go home. And at that moment, you, meaning Drew, came out of the student union building wearing the stupidest hat I've ever seen in my life. It was awesome. And you had a bucket full of lollipops. And you were walking along and you were handing the lollipops out to people in the line. All of a sudden, you got up to me and you just stopped and you stared. It was creepy. And then you looked at the guy next to me and you smiled and you reached into your bucket. You pulled out a lollipop and you handed it to him and you said, you need to give a lollipop to the beautiful woman standing next to you. And she said, I have never seen anyone get more embarrassed faster in my life. This guy turned beet red and he wouldn't even look at me. He just kind of held the lollipop out like this. And I felt so bad for this dude that I took the lollipop. And as soon as I did, you got this incredibly severe look on your face. And you looked at my mom and my dad and you said, look at that. Look at that. First day away from home. And she's already taking candy from a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, everybody lost it. 20 feet in every direction. Everyone started a howl with laughter. And I know this is cheesy. And I'm not sure why I'm telling you this. But at that moment when everyone was laughing... I knew that I shouldn't quit. I knew that I was where I was supposed to be. I knew that I was home, and I haven't spoken to you once in four years since that day, but I heard that you were leaving, and I just had to come up and tell you, you've been an incredibly important person in my life, and I'm going to miss you. At the beginning of the podcast, we talked about the simple wisdom of Charlie Chaplin and Albert Einstein's achievements and perspectives. And we also talked about the degree to which we are afraid of being equal with other people. Hmm, maybe the cosmos has something to teach us? Here is a Carl Sagan quote. In our tenure on this planet, we've accumulated dangerous evolutionary baggage, propensities for aggression and ritual, submission to leaders, hostility to outsiders, all of which puts our survival in some doubt. But we've also acquired compassion for others, love for our children, desire to learn from history and experience, and a great soaring passionate intelligence, the clear tools for our continued survival and prosperity. Which aspects of our nature will prevail is uncertain, particularly when our visions and prospects are bound to one small part 
of the small planet Earth. But up there, in the immensity of the cosmos, an inescapable perspective awaits us. We're going to close with a moment of optimism, a moment of momentum and gratitude. We are so grateful for the peace that comes from knowing that whatever happens here on Earth with humanity and our planet, creation marches on, and that is beautiful. We care deeply about what happens on our planet, and we use all of our energy, effort, love, and kindness on making its future better, and we do that one action at a time. While we are doing that every day, we can tap into that peace that creation provides. Tap into that peace whenever we need a quick psychological and emotional recharge for all of our efforts here on Earth to love, to help and stay connected to each other, and to all of the wonderful creation right here in this beautiful, amazing planet. So in closing, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? And what is your influence to use? Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures.